This is Christian Knudsen and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in Sizzling, downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin has finally put a rest to rest a legal challenge against U.S.-Mexico border wall construction touted by former President Donald Trump. Wisconsin was one of 20 states that filed suit against the Trump administration in 2019 over a plan to divert billions of dollars in federal funding away from states to pay for the barrier on the southern border, the Associated Press reports. Wisconsin stood to lose $8 million allocated to an Air National Guard facility. An executive order from President Joe Biden reversed construction on the wall, effectively ending the legal fight. But red tape kept Wisconsin officially involved after the other states dropped out. This was due to the lame duck laws that the state Republican lawmakers passed in 2018, which required the Republican-controlled legislature to sign off on the state exiting any lawsuits. The legislature's budget committee signed off on that exit earlier today, putting an end to the lawsuit. A proposal by state Republican lawmakers would remove sales taxes on diapers, strollers, car seats, and other baby supplies in Wisconsin. The, quote, tiny tot tax cut was introduced this week, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. The bill's backers say waiving Wisconsin's 5.5% sales and use tax on dozens of common baby products will ease financial burdens on young families. A very similar plan was initially floated as part of the state budget, but was dropped. The state estimated that plan would save parents about $37 million over two years. The bill lists a multiple baby items that would be included, including cribs, playpens, breast pumps, bottles, wipes, and changing tables. Most of the large new apartment buildings that have been built in Madison in recent years aren't affordable for the median renter, according to an analysis by the Wisconsin State Journal. The newspaper collected rent data from dozens of apartment developments that were granted occupancy between January 2021 and May of this year. They found the low-end median rent for a one-bedroom unit was $1,500 per month. That's well well above the $1,170 that would be considered affordable for an average resident, based on 30% of their income going to housing. The State Journal used a list of apartment developments from the city. Of 35 buildings on the list, five are income-restricted, with below-market rates on units for low-income residents. Madison drivers who frequent Atwood Avenue may find continuing frustration starting next week. A two-block section of Atwood between Fair Oaks and Sugar Avenues will be completely closed beginning Monday, July 31st, as part of a new phase of construction. The city estimates the closure will last about a month. Two-way traffic will still be open from Oldbrook Botanical Gardens to Walter Street. The city's waste drop-off and mulch facility on East Olin Avenue will be closed from Thursday, July 27th through Saturday, July 29th. Officials say the closure is to accommodate expected extra car and pedestrian traffic from the all-city swim meet taking place this weekend at the nearby Goodman Pool. Drop-off operations will resume on Sunday, July 30th. And now on to today's top stories. It's scorching outside today, and forecasts suggest conditions will get even hotter later this week. WORT reporter Abigail Levin spoke with UW-Madison professor of atmospheric and oceanic sciences Jonathan Martin about this heat wave, why it's happening, and what it means about our climate. Today, the high is 90 degrees Fahrenheit, but that's cool compared to the 93 degrees Madison is expecting later this week. And this is pretty hot for Madison. According to data from WeatherSpark, the average high temperature for Madison is 81 degrees on July 25th, and it rarely rises above 89. 
Well, today it did. And I'm Abigail Levins, here with Jonathan Martin, a professor of atmospheric and oceanic sciences at UW-Madison, to talk about why it's so hot and what this means for our climate. So thanks for being here with me today. It's hot out. That's why we're talking today. And we in the general public would probably call this a heat wave. Is that something you, as a weather expert professor, would call this? And what is the definition of a heat wave? Yeah, I think it's fair to call it a heat wave. I think there is probably a formal definition. I didn't look it up, uh, and it's going to depend on the location in the country, but it probably centers on the following thing, uh, where you have a series of days, probably a threshold number, I would say probably three or more, where the uh, daily average temperature exceeds the calendar day average by some amount. Again, another threshold I'm unaware of. So that's probably how one would define a heat wave. So we could we could um, assume it would be something like three straight days or more where um, the average temperature for the day is six to eight degrees warmer than normal for that time of year. And uh, that would probably qualify as a heat wave. How does this heat wave compare to temperatures of previous summers? Is it a lot higher than average it would be right now? Well, one of the things that's uh, unusual is the, the extensive nature of how hot it's been over so wide an area of the northern hemisphere. That's a little bit unusual. But this is the time of year where you kinda, you're going to set your, your seasonal record for the high temperature. You know, mid to late July is exactly when it's going to happen. And we've had brutal heat waves that have been almost as extensive in the past. 1936, July of 1936, I think there was something like 15 states in the Union set their all-time highs, many of them still not broken in that month. And that happened in Wisconsin, in fact. We were 107 in Madison. That's the, whole, the warmest day we've ever had, July 13th, 1936. And same in North Dakota and South Dakota and many other regional states in that summer. Uh, Then the summer of 1988 was brutally hot here as well. We had, uh, I think, a a large number of days over 90 degrees for for daytime highs. I think it was almost 30 days. And then uh, 2012 or 11, I can't remember exactly, we had a similarly large number of days over 90 degrees. So these things don't happen every summer. And this summer, this for southern Wisconsin, this may be the only week where we really feel this kind of oppressive heat that we are reminded of, uh, you know, from the past, but only for one week. It'll probably be over by Friday or Saturday. It'll really start to feel better. Uh, so this one's not as bad as, as others regionally, but across the globe, it's been pretty wild this summer, definitely. Okay, so you referenced that this might not be as bad as heat waves in the past, maybe even back in the 1900s. So yeah. an interesting thing, I was doing some research before this with regards to maybe how climate change would affect these heat waves, mm-hmm. because a lot of research is saying that it, it makes the heat waves longer and more frequent. Mm-hmm. So what is something like you're thinking about all this record-breaking heat? How do we deal with this and how do we think about this in terms of climate change? And is that impacting it even later when we were having the hotter temperatures over a, or almost 100 years ago? Yeah, uh, it, it's difficult to say whether or not those the anomaly from 1936 would be replicated uh, every 300 years or every 200 years in the absence of the background climate change. However, now we're challenging that, especially places south of us. They've had, you know, places in Oklahoma and Kansas have had many, many days over 100 degrees this year already, reminiscent of 1936. It's finally getting up this far north for the first time all summer. So it's not in another category from 1936. It's just that I think the likelihood of having a summer like this is increasing in the context of the background climate change. 
it's just going to be easier to warm us up. It's going to be easier to get us more humid, which will be the worst part of this of this next couple of days. It'll be how humid it is. It'll the first dew points well over 70 that we've had all summer long. People are going to notice that discomfort. And so that's the thing that I think gives uh, people with respiratory issues and various other types of illnesses some real problems is the, is the high humidity. And we, you know, in a warmer climate, where the air can hold slightly more water vapor, it's going to be easier to get to those kind of uncomfortable dew points uh, in the present day and in the future than it used to be. On that same note, thinking about people who were impacted by the health effects of it, it's interesting looking at the different health effects of a heat wave, and some people experience it differently, like maybe people in a city or people who don't have air conditioning or maybe Mm -hmm. people who are surrounded by less greenery. Can you talk about what that looks like for people? Yeah, it's a really dangerous uh, prospect if you have an ex- a really extended heat wave that comes with the high humidity. If you're unable to find relief from air conditioning inside, or as you point out, if you live in a place that's kind of, uh, you know, surrounded by stone or, or metal or something like that and not a woodland area that might be breezy occasionally, it can really compound whatever uh, health issues a person might already have as a pre-existing condition in the face of those high humidities. So people with respiratory issues really suffer in cases like this if they can't find relief for the um, to dehumidify the air, which is accomplished by air conditioning or by, you know, a breeze can help as well, but it doesn't really dehumidify. It just keeps the air moving a little bit more while you makes you a little more comfortable. So those are really, con- they're really big concerns. I think major municip- municipal regions, big cities try to anticipate that and they really should be able to do that in the modern era. We have forecasts of this heat wave that are, you know, they, we knew it was coming a week before it came. So no one's surprised. And as a consequence, if somebody or some large population is housed in a spot where they know they're going to have trouble, there should be services available that um, can bring some relief to those people. Certainly, one cannot blame um, bad forecasts for not taking care of people who need that assistance. And you mentioned difficulty breathing, and Mm -hmm. obviously air quality has been a big subject lately because even before this heat wave, we were having air quality issues. And obviously some of those have to do with wildfires, and some of them might have to do with heat, and some might have to do with things like carbon emissions. Can you tell me a little bit about the intersection of all of these problems and kind of which ones are primarily driving the issues right now? Yeah, air quality is a really complicated issue. You said it really nicely there in your question. Uh, It's an intersection of a lot of different things. When you have wildfires, as we've had almost all summer long, uh, lurking to our north and northwest now, uh, that fills the air with particulate matter from the, you know, fires themselves, burning embers and little pieces of ash and so on. When you couple that with high humidity, which comes from the south, the water vapor transport comes from the south, and some of that uh, invisible water vapor has an easier time condensing onto some of those smoke particles. So you end up with little water droplets and you can really start to um, get a hazy sky and various other things as a result. But it's not just a hazy sky, as you know. It's going to also impact the quality of the air that you're breathing. And so you really have a, a deficit of oxygen that you can intake in your lungs when you're coming, when every breath you take is filled with other particulates and other types of molecules and various other substances. And that's really what we're, we're dealing with right now. Uh, in addition, when you have you know, a lot of automobile traffic, like we do, of course, uh, in, in a big city, and the conditions in the atmosphere are such that you don't mix the air out through the vertical column very well, and that can happen in this, under the same set of broad-scale conditions that lead to a heat wave, then you can trap all that pollutant in the lowest part of the atmosphere where we live. And so you can increase 
day by day the concentration of some of those chemicals and those chemicals are not inert a lot of the nitrogen compounds that come out of a tailpipe of, of automobiles and buses and whatnot can aid in the production of ozone which is quite toxic to our lung tissue and so you can get uh, ozone production in extreme cases under the conditions that we're experiencing here this week so that's all kind of complicated chemistry that can really get in the way of people's health and as i say if you come in already with a respiratory deficit and you're breathing in a little bit higher ratio of ozone because of the heat wave and the pollution, you're going to really feel that, and it's not going to be good for you. Do you think that this kind of heat has a feedback loop on drivers of emissions? How might extreme heat impact things like greenhouse gas emissions and energy consumption? Well, the first thing that comes to mind in the face of that question is that, you know, if you're confronted with temperatures in the mid-90s and dew points over 70 where it's really uncomfortable and humid, everybody's turning their air conditioning on. You know, we, we didn't use it. My wife and I haven't used it all summer until this week. And so that takes, that's a power drain, and that power comes from either coal burning or some other kind of uh, oil burning power plants in the current day. So as soon as everybody turns on their air conditioning to seek that very relief we're talking about, then that, of course, is going to release more pollution to the atmosphere in that vicinity because somebody's burning some kind of carbon fuel to get the air conditioning going. So that is a, a feedback that's positive. So the warmer it gets, the more likely you are to be dumping a little bit more of the pollution that could then lead to some of the issues that you have in the so-called boundary layer, the lowest layer of the atmosphere during a heat wave. So absolutely, there are there are feedbacks like that that are self-perpetuating and self-aggrandizing, and that's one of them. Really one more question for you. We've talked a lot about people's health, concerns that might be surrounding this. I saw a note uh, from the city of Madison that extreme heat kills more people in the U.S. than any other weather event. How that is correct. With this week, how would you recommend people stay safe? How should anything else that we should consider with this heat wave on how to protect ourselves and not, I guess, die from extreme heat? I think the best thing you can do is, if it's available to you, get to an air-conditioned location, whether that be your house, turn it on like we have at my house. We don't use it often, but when it gets like this, we do. And or uh, find your way to a shopping mall where commercial interests are going to already have done that for you. So there might be a chance for you to get at least a few hours of some relief walking around or sitting around in a place that's air-conditioned. So that, that's one thing that can really help. Another is you have to stay hydrated. You really have to keep the water in your body as best you can. You know, I love to play ball or tennis or whatever it is outside, but these are the kind of days that I'd avoid playing outside for any length of time because you're going to find yourself unable to really assess whether or not you're feeling weak, woozy, whatever it is, from the heat stress or from something else. And so you want to just take that day off. Don't play any outside sports. That's another thing you can do, especially if you're middle-aged like me. And then I guess the third thing would be is to just be honest with yourself about how important it is that you weed the garden today, how important it is that you cut mm. the lawn today, and knowing that by the time Friday comes along, things are going to be considerably more comfortable outside, and you put yourself at less of a risk for heat stroke and various other health compromises that, that might ensue from being out in weather that's really detrimental, but kind of stealthily detrimental to our health. One has to really be careful and respect the power of the heat and humidity and what it can do to human physiology, because it's not pleasant. Thank you so much for talking about this. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. My pleasure. I've been on the line with Jonathan Martin, a professor of atmospheric and oceanic sciences at UW-Madison. As temperatures throughout the region continue to heat up, the city of Middleton will be opening several cooling centers. You can find a full list of locations and hours on the city of Middleton's website at cityofmiddleton.us under the news tab. 
Tomorrow is the University of Wisconsin-Madison's 175th anniversary, with plenty of celebrations planned. With their shared history, the state UW system and campuses are united in celebrating this achievement. WRT reporter Willow Polish has the story. Tomorrow is UW-Madison's demi-semi-sepcentennial anniversary as the UW system's flagship campus celebrates its 175th anniversary. To honor the event, the university will be holding a free celebration with music, fireworks, and of course, free ice cream. The university is excited to involve the community as well as respect heritage as they introduce a new Bucky statue along with raising the flag of the Ho-Chunk Nation while everyone celebrates. This anniversary is not just for UW-Madison, but also the state of Wisconsin as they were founded in the same year, 1848. Vice Chancellor for University Relations, Charles Hoslett, explains how the history of UW-Madison and the state of Wisconsin intertwine. What is now UW-Madison was the, the, the first public university in the state, created just a few weeks after the state gained statehood. From the University of Wisconsin-Madison began the network of 13 four-year and their respective two-year secondary schools that make up the UW system as we know it today in 2023. And then over time, there were other branch campuses uh, of UW-Madison that were created. At the same time, there was a a different uh, system. And uh, in 1971, uh, legislation was passed combining those two systems. 175 years later, the University of Wisconsin system still thrives with UW-Madison as its leading institution. Tomorrow's schedule is filled with free activities from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. At the Memorial Union Terrace, there will be live music from various performers, including the UW Marching Band, alongside a buffet provided by Babcock Dairy and Varsity Meats. At the Alumni Park, the Wisconsin Alumni Association will be serving free ice cream to the first 1,175 customers starting at 4.30. The UW Student Food Pantry is also collecting donations at the Memorial Union Terrace. And to round out the day, a fireworks show will be launched over Lake Mendota at around 9.30. Again, I just encourage people to come down. Uh, It's a celebration not just of the university, but of the state. And we're hoping people from the campus community and the broader community come down and, and help us celebrate. More info on tomorrow's events can be found at the website 175.wisc.edu. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Willow Polish. In 1925, the Annie C. Stewart Memorial Fountain was commissioned by the Stewart family in Memorial of Annie, who struggled with major depressive disorder and died by suicide in 1905. Located in the Vilas neighborhood on Madison's south side, the the fountain is in deep disrepair after nearly a century of prolonged exposure to Wisconsin winters and repeated vandalism. WORT reporter Hewan Lim spoke with Karen Wolf about conservation efforts underway to preserve the fountain. The Annie C. Stewart Fountain, located in Vilas Park next to the original entrance to the Henry Vilas Zoo, is the oldest piece of public art in the city. Construction on the fountain was completed in 1925, and almost a century later, that fountain is showing its age. It has been repeatedly vandalized and subjected to repeated Wisconsin winters. Now, it's marred by cracks, missing material, vegetation, discoloration, and corrosion. For years, the city has been working with neighbors to determine the fountain's future. In 2017, the city commissioned a consultant to determine the status of the fountain. That consultant report finds that, 
While the marble sculpture of Annie C. Stewart is in relatively good condition, the overall condition of the fountain is poor, if not hazardous. City Arts Administrator Karen Wolf says that, We have some safety concerns. If it continues to degrade and crumble and, you know, people interact with it, it could be unsafe for the public. And it's likely that minimal or moderate preservation at its current state isn't feasible. So what's next? Chicago-based consultant group Conservation of Sculpture and Object Studio Incorporation have just finished their analysis of the fountain. As part of the process, they considered nearly 1,400 comments in a community survey earlier this spring. Their report summarizes nine possible outcomes for the future of the fountain, along with pros and cons for each possible approach. And the range of options could cost anywhere from $175,000 to $405,000. Wolf says it's likely that, whatever the path forward, restoration of the fountain will likely be funded through public and private funds. One of the reasons that we are working so closely with a neighborhood group and with a public group is to determine is there capacity in the private sector of people who appreciate this fountain to do any fundraising towards the solution because that could expand what we are able to do rather than if we're just directly funding it through the city. She says that the fountain holds meaning, representing different things to different people. On the one hand, it's the city's oldest piece of public art and it's beloved by many. I know some people are attached to it because it marks a place that's important to them that they've enjoyed over the years. Other people are attached to the story, you know, that this is a person in Madison who struggled with mental health issues. When she died, her family made a memorial for her. That's pretty special, especially for 100 years ago to just openly acknowledge that struggle that she had. No matter the future of the fountain, it's likely that it'll change location. The fountain is located by the former entrance to the Henry Vila Sioux, which has since moved away. And located very close to the fountain are Ho-Chunk effigy mounds. It's not on an effigy mound, but it's very, very close to a very important ridge of mounds. And it used to be at the entrance to the zoo, and the zoo no longer, you don't enter the zoo that way. And now that we do know better, perhaps we can do better. Even removing the the fountain would, on some level, be a disruption to the landscape there. And so we would do all of that in partnership with State Historic Society, Ho-Chunk, our Landmarks Commission, like anybody who has more expertise about those matters than, than we do. For both reasons, the consultants recommend moving the fountain away from its current location. Those consultants also recommend moving at least the original marble sculpture indoors to minimize future deterioration. The city will hold another public meeting about the Annie C. Stewart Fountain next Monday, July 31st. For more information and to register, head to cityofmadison.com news. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Hiwan Lim. The time is now 6.34, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. When lawmakers hold a public hearing on a bill in the Assembly, lobbyists and paid government officials usually get to be the first to voice their thoughts. That's unfair to members of the public, says State Representative Dave Considine, a Democrat from Baraboo, especially considering that some of those community members have to drive hours just to get to the state capitol. 
Last week, Considine introduced a bill that looks to switch up the order of those public hearings and allow members of the public to speak their mind without waiting for hours. He spoke with WRT producer Nate Wegehout about this proposal. Say you want to testify on a bill going before the state assembly and you live in northern Wisconsin. That means that you have to take an hours-long drive down to Madison and then sit and wait for your name to be called next. Under the current rules, it can take hours before a member of the public can testify, but a recently introduced bill would change that, putting the focus on members of the public ahead of lobbyists and paid government officials. I'm joined now by Democratic Representative Dave Considine of Baraboo, who helped author the bill. Uh, Representative Considine, thank you so much for talking with me. You're welcome. I'm looking forward to it. Now, Representative Considine, uh, tell me about how public hearings currently work during assembly hearings. It is very much up to the chairperson and the leadership of the majority party. They can do, they have a lot of leeway in how they do. What normally happens is that uh, the authors of bills, and I think that's appropriate, will present the bill and, uh, you know, the evidence, and then we get to question those people. I don't want to change that. But then we frequently have the professionals, the lobbyists, the people from professional organizations that may be interested in the bill that testify frequently. They're the next ones that are heard. And my resolution really calls for us to switch that order around so that after the author presents the bill, members of the public can present their testimony and why they like or dislike the bill and why they think it's important. And now, in your statement last week when you announced this bill, you called this process sort of unfair to the members of the public, to community members. Why do you say that? How does this process put lobbyists and paid government officials ahead of the public? Well, we, the order of testimony frequently, uh, frequently the authors of the bill and others, it's, it's a sign up. And you, when you get there, you sign up for it. But sometimes that happens in order of when you arrive. But frequently, we have the, well, the people who know how the capital works will ask to be put up further in the queue, <laughs> right? And the, the citizen says, well, I just assume I got here at, let's say, 9.30, and the committee meeting started at 10. They will just assume I, I should be testifying pretty quickly on this bill. Uh, but come to find out, we have to decide that we're going to hear from the state agency and from all sorts of other people before we hear from the citizens who, you know, don't have an office just down the street. And I think that's unfair. I mean, these teachers, farmers who <laughs> are pretty busy, especially during the school year, they don't have time to get to Madison. They're probably taking a personal day off to come to Madison and testify. Farmers are leaving the farm to come in and testify. And what I call is, quote, unquote, defection, leave the suit. Not that I don't value lobbyists. I think they really know what they're talking about, and I want to hear from them. But they have an office just down the street. I mean, they could come in later. And so I'd like the citizens to testify first. And sort of tell me about what it takes for someone to testify on a bill if they don't live in Madison. So some people have to drive many, many hours to come testify on a bill. What, what sort of all goes into that? You sort of mentioned that farmers, teachers don't have those resources. What can, you, can you expand on that well, a little bit? Yeah, I certainly can. Um, you know, things that I know now as a legislator, I didn't know when I was a teacher at a farm, right? Um, if the hearing starts at 10, um, usually there's an order of the hearing presented. And so I know if there are four bills on the docket, 
Um, and I would encourage people to contact their representative or somebody else to say, how does this work? And when, when I'm, you know, when is the bill that I want to testify going to be heard? Because there, there are four or five bills in the education committee. We have been there sometimes for 10, 11, 12 hours and, and are just getting to the last bill, let's say. Well, that's pretty awkward for members of the public without knowing that. And so now lay out exactly for me what this bill would do and then why that's important. It merely says that if a citizen comes to testify in a bill, when that bill is heard, they receive priority. That that those persons who are not professional lobbyists, who are not uh, government workers, receive preference in regards to the order of when they will testify. Rather than being the last ones, which they almost always are, they'll be the first one. And then, do you think this bill will have any bipartisan support? Have you heard anything from Republicans yet about this bill since you've introduced it? Nothing specific, and I, and I kind of doubt it. I think I know that their leadership is, is against it, and, and especially um, with my colleagues across the aisle, um, there's a lot of power in their leadership and telling them how things are going to happen. Some committee chairs break that, but most of them just follow along. Um, I mean, because they could do this right now if they chose, but we choose not to. Uh, so I'm, I'm suspecting it will not, but this is the third time I've introduced this bill. I think we're almost at the, the same number of sponsors we finally got the second time. The first time I only got, I think, three or four. I think we're at nine or ten now. And so I, you know, legislation takes a long time and getting the ear of people and changing things takes a long time. And so I'm used to that. That's the political reality and we'll just keep trying. Just sort of wrapping things up here, what is the current status of this bill? And do you have just any final thoughts that you would like to share about uh, the importance of this bill? It's out for co-sponsorship right now. Um, it's been exactly a week since we had it out. We will decide when to, I think, co-sponsorship closes shortly. We may extend it if we, you know, can gen up any inter- more interest. Uh, but then we will submit it to uh, the Legislative Reference Bureau, and they will issue a bill number, and then it gets sent to assembly leadership who assign it to committee. And then the committee decides whether or not they're going to hear it. I've been talking with Representative Dave Considine, a Democrat from Baraboo, about his recently introduced bill to prioritize members of the public during assembly hearings. Uh, Representative Considine, thank you so much for talking with me. Uh, thank you, and th- thanks for reaching out about this bill. I really think it's important that our job is to represent the people of the state of Wisconsin, and those include the people from very disparate parts of the state who may not understand how government works, but they have passion for how it works, and they want to have input on it, and I want them to have it. Trail Tuesday is back and is headed to Cross Plains to explore Indian Lake County Park. There are several loops to take and historical gems to explore, as WORT contributor Reed Kamai discovered. Welcome to another edition of Trail Tuesday. This week we're headed northwest of Madison's Lakes to the Indian Lake County Park. Indian Lake County Park is located in Cross Plains. It's south off State Route 19, which can be accessed from U.S. Route 12. There is plenty of parking, along with a pavilion with picnic tables and bathrooms at the end of the driveway. There's lots to explore at this park, 
There are four main loops intended for both walking and, during the winter, cross-country skiing. These paths are indicated with colors on the official trail maps. There are also two non-colored trails, and of those two, it's the path that approaches Indian Lake where we start. If you start at the wood trailhead sign just past the parking lot, the lake loop is off to the right. You'll first traverse a grass path that soon takes you to a very wide open area that's great for running around or just laying in the sun. And if it weren't for this feature series, that's probably what I would have done. After that, you enter a web of paths. I first took the slight right turn that was provided, but after that, any turn you make that appears to lead towards the lake indeed does. There are lots of sunflowers and other flowers on either side of the path. It's not too long before we get to the lake. There's a sign to the right warning visitors of thin ice. We're out of season for that, but I imagine it would be relevant in the winter. If you turn around and then, while facing away from the lake, turn left, you can come up to the lake from another position as well. After that, I headed back towards the parking lot. Let's next explore one of the color paths, the purple route. I began walking the purple route not via the trailhead sign, but rather to the entrance parallel to and to the left of that one. This portion of the purple route actually belongs to the other three colors too. The routes indicated by colors on the map, when used for cross-country skiing, must be traversed in the counterclockwise direction as indicated on the map. I walked, as I later discovered, against the arrows, which for that mode of getting around is okay. There is in fact a fifth color that appears on the map, and that's yellow. The path indicated in yellow on the map belongs to the Ice Age Trail and of course extends well beyond the park. The color loops, including the yellow one belonging to the Ice Age Trail, begin on a gravel surface and bend gradually towards the left. It quickly opens up into a beautiful grass prairie. There's also a three-way intersection here. Staying straight takes you exclusively on the blue loop, which is the longest and widest of the color routes, measuring just over three miles. I turned right to stay on the other colors loops in search of the landmark I was headed for. And I happened to come across it almost immediately after the turn. We go up a small slope and then come across a log cabin. Well, it's two log cabins. The smaller one to the right serves as a restroom. What though was in the larger one? Oh man, this is like really old fashioned. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is a really old fashioned cabin. It smells like one. Just give it a smell. Yeah, you can see all that stacked up uh, firewood just to the right of the door uh, and to the left of the door, in fact. These nice little picnic tables they actually seem decently finished, especially on the on the bench parts of it. I'm just sitting down on it right now. Feels relatively comfortable for you know an old building like this. Let's check out they've got this little fireplace here. Let's see if we can open it up. Ooh, yeah, there's even a piece of firewood in there. This place is really nice. It was very cool inside there. It's a good spot to rest and take in some fluids, which is exactly what I did. As you could probably tell, the door has no artificial resistance, so if you let it go like I did, it will slam closed. Just outside the log cabin is a fire pit for visitors' enjoyment too. Continuing on though, we stay in the wide open space, but patches of trees within create a web of paths, so there's lots to explore. I stayed to the right and re-entered the wooded area straight ahead. It was nice to be back in the shade and hear some birds too. I turned to the right and found myself at a four-way intersection at which, helpfully, was a map. 
The map, plus small colored signs nailed into the trees near the corresponding paths, guided me onto the continuation of the now exclusively purple path. This segment of the purple trail has primarily a dirt surface to begin, and contains lots of bends to it, as well as rather steep slopes at times, both uphill and downhill in both directions. Continuing along, we come across a three-way intersection. To the right is the log cabin we visited earlier, corresponding to what the trail map indicates. I had taken the purple trail specifically because the map indicated that a, quote, warming house could be found from there. It turns out the warming house referred to the log cabin and did not require walking specifically along the purple path. In any case, I wanted to see the rest of the purple path, and so I turned left. After that, there's another three-way intersection. Turning right takes us back towards the trailhead and back on the park's other color paths. After that, we're back at the trailhead. There's one more gem, arguably the best one of this park, still to explore. The chapel. The chapel I referenced was built in 1857 by a man named John Endress and his son Peter. They secured a team of oxen to haul the stone all the way to the top of a mound, which we will now climb. It's a steep path with, near the beginning, several logs that create long stairs, so watch your step as you climb. The long stairs soon turn into more traditional wooden ones. About halfway, you can look down to the right and see the prairie we were in earlier. It's an amazing view. Anyway, after the stairs, we're at the top of the hill and in search of the chapel. Alright, so yeah, so I think we're at the top here. Oh wait, there's the chapel. Okay. Yeah, you can see it up ahead. It's a very small chapel, very small. Um, and so, we'll hopefully be able to check it out. There's a gate in front of it. I don't know if the gate is open, but we're gonna see. There's a sturdy black fence around the chapel, but also a gate and latch. Oh, look at this, we're gonna be able to get in. We're past the gate at least, so we're gonna be able to get into the chapel. This is the inside of the chapel. It's very small, very small. You've got this altar right here. Yeah, you got some really nice paintings on either side. Just really beautiful, man. I gotta get a lot of pictures. On the altar is a notebook which visitors are encouraged to sign and write messages in. The dates of some signatures were from earlier in the day that I visited. After visiting the chapel, you can continue in the same direction as before to come across a rich, albeit somewhat tree-obstructed view of Indian Lake. It's the path's dead end, marked by an arrangement of stacked horizontal logs encircling the overlook point. All that's left to do at this point is head back down. The decline after the stairs is rather steep at times, so be sure to go slowly and keep a stable stance. Soon you'll end up back at the parking lot after a visit full of lake views, wide open prairies, and exploration spots which have easily been my favorites so far in this feature series. Be sure to join us in a week's time for the next trail. For now, Reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Kamai. The year is a little more than half over, and the Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Rehab Center has been keeping busy. On tonight's Wildlife Weekly, Jackie Sandberg takes a head count of all the critters that have received care so far in 2023.
Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we talk about a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment. And today, I want to give a really great patient census update and what our admissions look like here in the middle of the month, especially in summer when it is super busy. So up through June, at the end of the month, we actually had a lot of admissions. So our admissions year to date were at 982. And as of today, in about the third week of July, we're already seeing over 1,200 patients to the clinic as of 2023, January 1st. So this number does not include um, close to 200 turtle eggs, which we, of course, have hatching in the fall months and will be with us very soon. They've been sitting in their little incubators for a long time, and we are so excited to have them hatch in our August or September. And then if we compare it to last year, our admissions were about 1,300 or so about the same time of year, so pretty similar. But what has been interesting is that we've seen less of our normal, typical songbird species this year. And those typical songbirds were American robins, house finches, and morning doves especially. Last year, we actually admitted almost 100 morning doves, and this year so far, we are only seeing about 30 or so. So what's happening with all the songbirds? We, we don't really know, but it's interesting to track the data. So we have seen um, some really cool species. Um, our highlights were that we had a couple of fledgling eastern phoebes, which are really fun. We also had a fledgling northern roughwing swallow. Those were all released birds. We've had a number of eastern red bats, which we've talked about in previous segments. And then lots of uh, house finches, lots of ducks were over, you know, 250 ducks for the year so far. And we've also seen a good number of eagles. So bald eagles still coming through with various different types of injuries. Most of them physical trauma wounds so far in the last few weeks. Um, and also we're starting to see some of our specialty birds. Um, so many American crows admitted this year. And it is a drought year. And those are the years that we typically see higher rates of West Nile virus, which is something we suspect in our crow populations. It is a virus that is transmissible to people. It's um, where the mosquito you know, bites an infected bird and then it can transmit to people if that same mosquito bites people. It can also get to horses and other species that are commonly affected. But for crows, unfortunately, they just have a really hard time with that virus. So West Nile virus is actually higher in drought conditions than it is in wet years because a lot of times there's very few pockets of water where all of the mosquitoes and the birds and animals really congregate. So in those situations, we see higher rates of West Nile virus, uh, which may explain why we've seen so many crows coming in this summer with some interesting neurological symptoms, especially tremoring, unable to fly, ataxia, meaning they're unbalanced, uncoordinated. But those are also symptoms of things like the highly pathogenic avian influenza. So we don't necessarily want to rule anything out. And it's just something that we, we do see in those species that are affected the most. And corvids, blue jays, crows, ravens, those seem to have a high, high mortality rate when they have gotten West Nile virus. So that could be one uh, situation that we're seeing, and it's definitely still prevalent here in the United States. Otherwise, we also have red-tailed hawks, turkey poults. We've got lots of different types of new mammals coming through. So besides our eastern red bat, we've also seen a baby bobcat. Um, we also have seen a domestic fox, which is kind of interesting. It's not something we see very often, but this fox uh, is not your typical wild red fox type of canid. It was probably either from a fur farm potentially or maybe a domesticated fox kind of derivative, I suppose, that was kept as a pet potentially and maybe let loose. You know, they are a lot of work foxes. They're 
are special species. They're not the same as, you know, your dogs or cats. It would be considered more of an exotic at that point. So it was found on the roadside and picked up and we're trying to uh, work with it and triage it so it can go um, be placed either maybe at a zoo or a sanctuary or other exotics facility. So we've had just a lot of really, really cool animals, I think, in this month. So besides that, our, our patients have been red-shouldered hawks. We've also had wood ducks. We've had many different songbird species, cedar waxwings, probably most commonly starting to come in at this time of year. And then a good number of cardinals and other, you know, fun typical songbirds that you'll see in your backyard. So still getting baby robins and grackles and all those other fun ones. Also, uh, last thing is I'd mentioned uh, hummingbirds are definitely coming through. We've got the young ones that are hatching. The juveniles are definitely probably feeding at feeders. Uh, so keep your eye out for hummingbirds that'll be starting to migrate here soon. We've gotten a few of them that have been admitted just at the fledgling age and needed a few more, eh, let's say extra days of hand feeding and then some beautiful setups in our outdoor aviaries for them to find nectar and to be able to drink. So those are some exciting things. Um, we've already, re already released one of them and hopefully we have another one coming up here soon. But those are probably some of my favorites. The ruby-throated hummingbird is what we see here most in Wisconsin. So there's a uh, really quick patient synopsis, uh, an update on what we've been seeing here at Dane County Humane Society's Wildlife Center over the last few weeks. And we hope that you're enjoying summer. Uh, please keep an eye out for sick, injured, or orphaned animals, especially in hot weather. Um, you know, as the heat increases, they're probably having a tougher time finding shade, finding food, finding water. Um, we are available to help in those situations. Uh, if you give us a call, we can help you triage any wildlife situation for the most part. 608-287-3235 uh, is our number. And otherwise, we really appreciate you listening here today on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John K. Wilson. Your reporters were Hewan Lim, Abigail Evans, and Willow Polish. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg and Reed Kamai. Nate Carlin engineered the show. Nate Weggie helped produce this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you follow podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish Language Language News with the Noise Show Patio. Good night.